0: Y'all doing well? Good. Tell you what, I've got myself all paranoid now. I have some deacons that didn't help me out on Wednesday night. You guys know who you are? All right, Wednesday night Bible study. If you haven't been showing up, you're missing out. You never know what I'll do. This Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, I left my fly open the whole time. Can you imagine that? And not one deacon. Not one guy said, hey, Ryan, by the way, your fly's open. They were so worried about drawing attention to it, they didn't even, like, help me out. Like, see, and then you tell me afterwards, and it's like, man, you guys, like, you just, you waited too late. So you guys, you never know what will happen. You get opportunities to make fun of me. That's a part of the deal. And, you know, not one smirk, not one person just like, hey, you know, or point to it, do something. Like, something's better than nothing. I know. So now I'm like, I'm like paranoid everywhere. I'm like checking myself. So if you ever guys are wondering what's going on, that's what's happening. All right. And so anyway, this is just a matter of the deal. I'm just glad I didn't go into the bathroom with a microphone or, you know, it could be worse. It could be worse. So anyway, things happen and you want to be here for it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter two, that has nothing to do with tonight. I just thought I'd throw that out there for you. Okay, so, (laughs) you know, I was reading a story this past week that I thought was really interesting. I thought it was very fitting for what we've been studying in the book of Nehemiah. I hope, for me, the book of Nehemiah has been so challenging because Nehemiah, the thing that stands out to me about him is that I've just read through it and, and I just keep reading through it trying to glean all the principles that I can get, but what stands out to me is this. Every step of the way, at every turn, Nehemiah is praying. I don't know about you guys, but if I was to ask you, what's one of the weakest areas of your Christian life, what would you say? Man, I'm telling you, that's one of the quickest things that gets off the, you know, the priority list in the Christian life, isn't it? It's one of the first things to go. But the thing that's sad to me about that is that prayer is one of the priorities of Christian living. I mean, without it, we literally will not see God work and move around us. And that's the sad thing. I was reading an article this week. uh, Around 1840, there was two slaves in Kentucky that slipped out of the shack where they were living and into the darkness. It was a husband and wife. They had left a plantation, and they were trying to make their escape in the middle of the night. They were able to make it to a safe house in the Underground Railroad. They went from house to house, and they were trying to make it into the, uh, a free land where they could make a, a new lifestyle. And they did. They Eventually, they made it to Canada. And they had a son in 1843, and they named him Elijah. They were able to send him to school, which at that time was very rare. Uh, he went there. He, his dad prospered in his business ventures. Eventually, they had, were so successful in their business, they were able to send their son, Elijah, to Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, where he began to study medical engineering. And so eventually, even after he finished that, he came back. He ended up settling in the Detroit area where he was looking for work, but he wasn't able to find work in the specific field that he studied. He ended up landing a job as a fireman on the Michigan Central Railroad. And in those days, the thing that was unusual is that the... the the trains would have to stop frequently to get the, the engines and everything else relubricated. They had to be oiled well. And so this guy, he began to work there on the railroads. And the thing that was interesting about him is Elijah design- designed a steam engine lubricator so that the engine wouldn't have to stop every certain distance to relubricate. He came up with a brand new system. He ended up inventing it and coming out with it, saving them money and time. Which, by the way, if you want to work your way up in a a company or organization, you save them time and money, you'll get it. And that's exactly what he did. He came up with a fantastic invention. Elijah didn't stop with that, though. He continued on. He kept improving his device. He developed variations of it. And listen to this. At the very end of his life, he had uh, received 42 different patents for his work. Here's what happened. Other people began to try to copy what he was doing in his area. Uh, But the thing was, is it came to be known that Elijah's work was so superior to that that nobody else would settle for anything less than Elijah's product. A phrase ended up being made that we frequently use all the time. Uh, It's it's used because Elijah's last name was McCoy. Have you ever heard the saying, it's the real McCoy? It came from this guy that came out with all these inventions. It was a phrase that was coined to honor a man's work. When it's spoken by people who would settle for nothing less than the real McCoy, they wanted the real thing. And you know, as we've been reading through the book of Nehemiah, what I find is that Nehemiah was the real McCoy. I mean, he was so authentic. You're gonna see that as we get into Nehemiah chapter two, literally every page that you read, you, re- you recognize Nehemiah's opening up his personal life for you to see it, as he really was, mind you. Isn't that so unusual with leaders, for them to be able to open up to you people and let them see the inside, let them see what's going on behind the scenes? And what we find here is that Nehemiah, uh, he's in a specific situation. God's put on his heart, what? A burden to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He recognizes that if they aren't able to return back and build those walls, his people are going to suffer like they already were. They were already in the midst of a lot of adversity, calamity. The situations were bad. And here in the middle of all of that, he's working for a pagan king named King Artaxerxes. And the king uh, has a desire uh, he doesn't know what his desires are. He—he's basically is going to have to request to the king for permission to send him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But you can imagine that here's his superior—that is a pagan king that doesn't understand who Nehemiah's God was. And so, in the middle of all of this, it's an impossible situation, right? Nehemiah is going to have to go before a pagan king and lay out his request. His request specifically to go back to Jerusalem. Now I want us to be reminded a little bit about what we covered last week. I gave you guys a quote that I think is very apropos for Nehemiah. Hudson Taylor made the statement, and hopefully you guys remember this. He made this statement. "It's It's possible to move men by God through prayer. You know, a lot of people, when they have something in particular that they want to get done, what do they do? They manipulate, they flatter, they scheme. Nehemiah never did any of that. When he knew the burden that God had put on his heart, what did he do? You remember? He didn't take it immediately before the king of Persia, even though he was the most powerful man in the world. He decided instead of scheming and manipulating and trying to work out the situation himself, he did something incredible. He decided that he would drop to his knees and he would begin to take his boss, his earthly king, before the king of kings, and he would begin to pray that God would work and move in his heart. You see, the thing that's incredible about Nehemiah is that he had a firm belief that God can move in people's hearts and he can change it. Have you ever had people you pray for you ever have certain situations, God, I need you to work this situation out. I got this boss at work that he's pretty hard-headed. You ever had somebody that you're like, man, I would really like to see him to come to faith in Christ. I really wish God would get a hold of this person's heart. And what Nehemiah teaches us is this, you can't change people. Have you ever recognized that? As much as you want it for other people, I'll tell you what, over the past couple years, if there's been one lesson I've really learned, as much as you want people to change, you can't change them. Right? You can't. But there is something that you can do about it. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, hey, you got this hard head that's at work, there's nothing that you can do. There is something you can do about it. It's just a lot of times it's the thing that we don't really wanna do unless it's a last case situation, right? Unless you got nothing else. And so we find that Nehemiah drops to his knees and begins to pray, that God would listen to his prayers. Now, here's the reason why it's important for us to start with Proverbs 21. I love Proverbs 21, You look at the very first verse in this uh, chapter and you'll notice that uh, this proverb is a comparative proverb, meaning that he's going to do the comparison of two different things and he's going to draw a principle from it. Now follow along with me because this sets up Nehemiah absolutely perfectly, okay? So Nehemiah 21, look at verse 1, it says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as what? the rivers of water. The Hebrew text is a little bit different. It doesn't start off with the king's heart, it actually starts off with the rivers of water. That idea of the rivers of water is the idea of a channel. It's the idea of a ditch that takes water that's from a reservoir and it runs it to a plain. Okay, you following me? It's the idea of a main body of water and it's a ditch, a canal, that runs water from there to a plain where the waters need to be run to that area to irrigate it. So it's the idea of an irrigation canal, you might say. And so if you look at the verse like this, like irrigation canals carrying water, so the heart of the king is in Jehovah's hands. He's doing a comparison. He's saying that uh, just like uh, you have a body of water, the canals can run the water in a certain direction. That's like what the king's heart is in the hands of Jehovah. He's literally able to make it move in any direction that he wants it to because why? It's in Jehovah's hand. That is a fantastic thought. The writer is talking about the king's heart because why? You guys recognize where people make decisions, right? Decisions, where people's intellect, where they reason, where they wrestle back and forth with decisions is made where? It's made where? In the heart. The heart is the place where decisions are made. And literally what he's saying is that the the king's heart is where? It's in Jehovah's hand. God is literally able to work in the heart of a pagan king to get him to make any decision that God wants him to make. Now listen, there's no qualifiers on this. When this proverb was written, what I mean by that is this. Uh, It doesn't mean if you're talking about a king that knows who God is or a king that is pagan and doesn't even know who God is. Either way, the king's heart is where? It's in Jehovah's hand. That is fantastic. Now here's the other thing. Now notice the rest of it. He begins After the comparison, he declares a principle. He says this. So God, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God can literally bend it. He can make it move in any direction that he wants to. Think about that. In the heart of a pagan king, God can make it move in a a direction that he wants it to go. Listen, and, and you don't have to necessarily say that it's just for kings. That's not the principle. The reason why in Proverbs it's comparing it to a king is why. It's taking the most powerful person position that he can think of, and he's saying, listen, if God can do that with a king that's in the highest position that a man could hold, listen, is there anybody else that he couldn't do the same thing with? So, folks, here's the question. If that principle is true, and I believe it is, then why is it that we don't pray for people more often? (laughs) I'm just saying, and and I'll be honest with you, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, so I'm not throwing anything, don't get upset with me, I'm not calling you out, I'm just saying, hey, it would probably be good if we prayed for people more often, wouldn't it? And so the principles here, if you were to say it like this, if you bring it all together, like irrigation canals carrying water, so is the heart of the king in Jehovah's hands. He causes it to bend and incline in whatever direction that he wants to. You see, in order for you to understand the power of prayer, you have to understand who's sovereign. You know, one of the powerful things about prayer is it's recognizing God is in control, and I'm not. It means that I would love to change the situation, but I can't. And folks, I think there's many of you that are probably in here tonight that you say, you have some situations in your life that you really need prayer about. One of the reasons why you go to God in prayer is that you're bowing your knee before a king, and you're saying, God, I cannot control, but you can. And that's one of the most powerful things that you could ever come to in the Christian life is to say, God, I can't, but you can. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here in this passage. In order to, the first one we have to be acquainted with and impressed with is Jehovah. He's the one that changes people. So Nehemiah chapter two, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, you remember I told you Nehemiah, he's been praying And he wants to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And so what he does, Nehemiah worked for this pagan king of Persia. And you guys know the saying, you think the king's heart in Persia would be easy to change? Have you ever heard the saying? We we say this like all, all the time. Don't try to change it. It's like the law of the Medes and Persians. You ever heard that saying before? What do you mean by that? Why is it people say that? Well, the law of the Medes and Persians, if you go back to Esther, you remember, once they invoked the law and the king put his signet ring on it, there was no going back and changing it. And we're talking about the king of where? Persia. So literally, the king is impossible to change unless you use divine resources. So here you have Nehemiah chapter two, and you remember the fact that he's, he's asking, he's begging, he's crying out for God to work in the heart of this pagan king. So look back, Nehemiah chapter one, look at verse 11. I love how this starts. And this is gonna be, I promise, I'm gonna try to make it really practical. Nehemiah one, verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to what? To the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day. What day? When did he want God to move? Look at, the, look at verse 11. Notice when he wanted him to do it. Today. Have you ever prayed like, God, uh, not, don't just do it, but right now, like Today. You can pray that way, it's okay. It doesn't mean that God's necessarily gonna do it when you ask for, but he's listening. So notice he says, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now notice, listen, he's praying, Lord, I want you, I'm praying that you would change this man's heart. Lord, would you begin to work in it? Would you begin to move in it that you would make him favorable to the request that I'm gonna bring to him? Isn't that such a good prayer request? Lord, would you begin to even move and and do what I can't do? I can't change it. And see, I have to point out something to you because you won't notice it unless I say it. He's praying this prayer in the month of November. You remember I told you that? It's the month of November, 444 B.C. And uh, what happens is, is that if you go down to verse one in chapter two, I want you to notice this. Look at it with me, Nehemiah chapter two, verse one. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, that's not like the car, that's their month, all right? Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. You know what month that is? That's April. So how many months is that? Four or five months you're looking at, okay. Why isn't that Nehemiah hasn't written anything else? Oh, man, I'm stumping you. I'm, not, I'm really not trying to, 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 to cause any confusion. Why is it? There's not been nothing to write about. He wrote in chapter one, Lord, would you do it today? You remember he's praying, God, would you? have you ever been there before? You ever been frustrated? Hey, God, I don't even know if you're listening to my prayers. Are my prayers hitting the ceiling? Are they coming back? And Nehemiah hasn't written anything for four months. Why? There's nothing to write about. God hasn't been doing anything yet. You ever been frustrated like that before? And, and you imagine the feelings that he has. He's, uh, one of the more difficult things in the Christian life is waiting. Strength will rise. You remember the song, As We Wait Upon? The, that's so easy to sing, <laughs> right? But it's, it's so hard to live. Have you ever been in that waiting? You wait for a test result? Oh, that's the worst possible thing you could do. I hate how the medical field, don't you? It's like, do you guys ever have to wait for anything? I, I recognize it takes a long time for those things to come in. But man, you have to wait, and it does what? Blood pressure through the roof, right? And so here's this, uh, he's prayed about it. There's the gap between what he prayed and the response that he's seeing. He, can you imagine what it was like? You think he was still praying about it? I guarantee you he was. He prayed the first day, nothing happened. I prayed about it today. He waits two days, it turns into two weeks, it turns into a month, then it takes from month to two months, then to three months, and then to four months, and God, like, I don't know if you remember this, but I really, really need you to come through right now. Hey, folks, one of the greatest lessons that you can learn is that waiting and prayer go hand in hand. Have you recognized the fact that uh, you really haven't learned how to pray unless you can Wait. That is not a popular topic. Um, Prayer and waiting go hand in hand. If you don't know how to wait properly and allow God to move, then you really haven't learned the discipline of prayer because hand in hand, prayer and waiting always work together. As much as you would like him to move today, God's timing is on a totally different time frame than ours. And as much as you would like to manipulate that, and say, God, I really would like you to do that now, God doesn't work on our time frame. His timing's perfect. (laughs) And the thing is, is like, as much as our finite minds can try to understand, we don't understand the way that God thinks or the reason why he does what he does. But we know that, what? We believe he's sovereign. We trust in who he is. We trust in how he's revealed himself to be. So what do we do? We have confidence in our waiting. God, I don't know why you're not acting now, but I'm gonna trust that you have a plan, You know why it is that you do what you do. I'm just gonna wait for you to do it in your timing. I'm gonna trust you. Can I tell you that that's so easy to talk about but really hard to live? And folks, uh, Nehemiah exercises a whole lot of waiting. So let's get into this a little bit more. Notice Nehemiah in Persia. Let's look at the very first thing. There's a sudden crisis. Now remember, how many months has passed by? Four months, all right? Four months have passed by, okay? He's been waiting. He's already prayed about it. Nothing's happened. You come to this verse. Look at verse one. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been, been a before time sad in his presence. Now, notice, four months later, and he's in the same situation, doing the same job, the same task. Have you ever been in the monotony of doing your same job? Oh, come on, you guys, be honest. Your, your boss isn't here anyway. All right, I'm just joking. All right, so the monotony of doing the same day in, day out task of waiting and, and you've been praying. You see, his, his mindset has been on a different job in Jerusalem. And here he is, he's praying and, and nothing's happening Uh, It says that he's never been sad in the king's presence before. And you're like, well, what does that really have have to do with anything? Nobody knew what was going on inside the heart of Nehemiah. Not even the king. He didn't act sad. Does that blow your mind just a little bit? Four months, like nobody could ever tell what was going on in his heart? You know what that tells me? You can have people all around you that are struggling and you'd never even know about it. You want to know one of the reasons why you ought to be nice to people in church? (laughs) People are going through things, right? There's times where people show up here and, man, they've had a tough week. And they're really just needing some encouragement, a friendly face, somebody to smile at them, somebody to know that they care, somebody that will form a relationship with them, somebody that will pray for them. And here's Nehemiah. He's been in the king's presence for four months. The king doesn't even know what he's struggling with. But listen, the Lord knew what he was struggling with. Wow. And here he is. He's feeling it. Nehemiah can't, can't keep it in any longer. And notice that in the middle of this, I love how open Nehemiah is. He said, now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Now, before all this, I had never been sad before in his presence. Well, that's probably a good thing. Why is that? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But it appears, it appears that at least in this verse, Nehemiah is having a good day or Bad day. Bad day. It's starting to show, it's starting to wear on him because listen, there's nothing more devastating than when you have dreams and it looks like they're crumbling right in front of you. You ever been there before? And you're sitting there thinking, God, like uh, I really had these dreams, I thought they came from you, but it doesn't like it's gonna work out right now. And he's sad, he's depressed. He's like, Lord, this isn't exactly the way I thought it was gonna turn out. You ever felt that way? And here he is, he says, it was a bad day for him, it was a breaking point. Now look at verse two wherefore the king said unto me why is thy countenance sad seeing that thou art not sick this is nothing else but sorrow of heart and look at what he says he opens up and he tells you another thing about his emotions he says then I was very sore afraid you know I love how Nehemiah opens up about how he was feeling you know why because we can identify with that He prayed and prayed and it looked like nothing was happening and he was sad about it. Hey, you know what? You think God knows the emotions that you go through when you're facing those things? And listen, even God can use your mistakes and your bad days to orchestrate the events that he's coming to to pass, the working out behind the scenes that you don't even see. Notice what happens. I, I just, I think it's fantastic. Why is thy countenance sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of the heart. And then I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Now, this is the reason why. In those days when you work for the king, you're not allowed to be sad in his presence. It was like uh, he always wanted people around him. If you were negative, what'd do he do? Bye, get rid of you. You're dead. No more problem. All right, so in the king's presence, he says, I had never beforehand been sad in his presence. This day he was, and notice the problem was is that the king recognized it. And so here, and why does it say that he's sore afraid? Well, uh, his life's on the line. He could easily be killed, and here's the reason why. In those days, if you had the job of the cupbearer and you were to bring the king his drink and his food, if, if he noticed that there was anything out of place about you, then he thinks something's going on, He thinks that a lot of times in those days, the way that the king would be assassinated was why. They would usually use like the cupbearer. They would poison his food. That's why they had the position to begin with. And so the whole point is this. The king notices that he's sad and something's off. And it could end up, he could lose his life. Then you throw on top of all of that, and listen, folks, the history behind this is that King Artaxerxes' dad had been killed by an assassination, And so here's this king, he notices what's going on, and he's like, why are you sad? Why are you sad? There's suspicion. The king's paranoid. He's beginning to think, hey, what is it you're trying to plan? You know, it's amazing. Benjamin Disraeli made this statement. Everything comes if one will only wait for it. In the middle of all of this, Nehemiah had probably begun to question if God was hearing him. And God could even use his mistakes in the presence of a king. Listen to that. God could even use his mistakes in the presence of a king to unroll his plans and unfold it right there in front of him. Now, I want to I want you to notice what's happening here. Okay, because you won't I, I try to bring out some things that you can see what's happening. Notice in your Bible verse 2, the king said to me. Verse 3, I said to the king. Verse 4, The king said to me, verse five, I said to the king. Verse six, the king said to me. Verse seven, I said to the king. What's going on? It's a drama. It's like a story. Now, the only thing that's going on here is this. The only thing that's behind the scenes that you know is going on is how Nehemiah feels. That's it, nothing else, nothing else. You know how Nehemiah feels. You don't know how the king feels. Now, follow along with me, and let's keep going on. Verse three, and (laughs) And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why is he saying that? He wants to live. Long live the king. All right, so anyway, he goes on. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies in waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fires? What's he saying? There's nothing in your drink, I promise. There's no, no poison. You don't have to worry. I'm not doing anything. And he tells, long live the king. And for four months, Nehemiah's been asking God to grant him favor in the king's eyes. And for the very first time, the king notices what's going on with Nehemiah. Is that an accident? No. It's unexpected. Uh, you look at, if you know the history behind what goes on here, this is the same king that in Ezra chapter four, had shut down the building projects for, Jer- uh, and, uh, for Jerusalem before. So this is the king that had known that there was building going on in Jerusalem beforehand, and what did he do? He stopped it. And you know that Nehemiah wants to bring up what? He wants a building project to happen. Imagine what he's feeling right now. It's impossible. Nehemiah knows his feelings just for a moment, and he shows that he's sad. And he, remember, he show, look at what he answers. He says, why shouldn't I be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, their graveyard, where my, where my ancestors are buried, it lies in waste. It's totally destroyed. It, it's been burned down. Why would I not be sad? I wonder if I was Nehemiah, you might stop and pause and think, Man, that's not exactly the way I wanted to say that. (coughs) Have you ever said something and you're like, man, I probably didn't phrase that the best. I do that with my wife all the time. Love you, babe. All right, so, you know, you say something and you're just like, you know, "Eh, I don't think I should have said it that way. That's exactly probably what he was thinking. Why shouldn't I be sad? My whole city's been burned down. Everything's destroyed. Why wouldn't I be? I probably would have softened that up a little bit. I probably wouldn't have said it that way. You ever been there? That's what he's saying, and I doubt that Nehemiah would have picked that day to talk about that subject. He's on the uh, on the defensive now. Look what happens. He makes a surprising request. Look at verse four. Then the king said unto me, "For what dost thou make a request?" So I prayed to the God of heaven. Don't you love that? The king finally asked the question, ding, 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 ding. This is the climax. This is what he was looking for, for the king to finally make a question. Listen, up to this point, Nehemiah had never made a request to the king before. Think about that. Four months, he's in the king's presence. Never once asked him for anything. He had only asked who? God. Okay, everybody else. He had only asked who? He only asked God. Only asked God. Let me ask you a question, and this is a question everybody here can answer. What was moving inside the heart of this pagan king to make him think, ask him the question, what is it that you need? Hey, folks, that is not a typical question from a king of Persia that says, hey, by the way, what do you need? That doesn't happen. And, folks, that's why you have to stop and take a pause and think about What's happening in the scriptures? Listen, folks, literally God is bending the heart of the king in the direction that he wants it to go. He's moving in the heart saying, hey, ask Nehemiah what it is that he wants that he, what he needs in order to, to fulfill his request. It's a breakthrough. It's a moment, an open door. He had never asked anything, but something was moving in the heart of this king, and it was Jehovah. His heart was in the hand of God. Listen, folks, if you don't believe that, you will never accurately pray for people around you. You believe that? If you don't believe that people's hearts are in the hand of Jehovah, you will never accurately pray for them with the right perspective of who God is, right? And so what did Nehemiah pray? Maybe he prayed the Hebrew word, help. Maybe, what is it that he prayed? You think he was praying for wisdom? Hey, don't you love those little little quick prayers that he makes. And he says, God, give me the words to say. Don't let me blow this. Don't let me say the wrong thing because if I do, this isn't gonna work out. He's praying that short little prayers. Hey, folks, don't underestimate a short little prayer because it was with the heart behind it that God, I really don't know what to do right here. And if you can move in the heart of a pagan king, would you move in my heart so that I speak the right words? Wow! Now notice what happens—a submissive, a submissive appeal. Look at verse five. And I said unto the king, If it pleases the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. Notice how much tact that he uses when he brings this to him. He doesn't shove it down his throat. He doesn't push his way. Do you ever do that with people? You ever say, hey, by the way, um, like, uh, this is what I want to d- happen. He didn't do that. He tactfully says what? And if it pleased the king, that's his way of saying, I'm gonna give room for God to work in his heart. Amen. Man, I've, I've, I'll be honest with you. I find a lot of conviction in that right there. I don't do that. I would be more of the, let's just, lay it out there, say it straight, put it out in front of them exactly what it is, tell them to do it. That's not what he does. He says, if it please the king, would you send me back to Judah? Would you allow me to go back and build? It? If that's okay with you, and I'll build it. The very same request that he had given to God already, by the way, he's echoing the prayer request that he had already made fantastic. Now look at this, a subtle influence. Look at verse six, and you have to notice details, folks. When you read scripture, if you do not notice the small details, you'll miss out on the story. Now look at what happens in verse six, and the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, you need to circle that, for how long shall thy journey be, and when will thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Fantastic verse. You ought to star that, mark it, highlight it. The reason why is that the Bible never includes details that aren't pertinent for you to know. The thought behind the verse 6 is this. Queens normally didn't sit beside the king that's making decisions in Persia. If you don't believe me, go check out the book of Esther. You remember when Esther had the request that God would save the people? You remember what she had to do? She had to, like, you know, really, like, do it up. Like, she probably dressed like a 10, all right, when she's gonna go in there. And it's like, you know, walking around, strutting around, hoping the king would notice her. And, you know, she makes this request. And you remember the king put out the scepter? If he hadn't done that, she would have been a goner, okay? So what he's pointing out is that there's a queen that's in the presence of the king, and that's what swayed the direction for it to work out for him. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, who in the world is this queen? There's a lot of thoughts behind that. I'll just say this, is that when you look at it, recognize the implication is the queen was influencing the king for the direction. Otherwise, there's no point in putting the queen in there. I personally, and a lot of people think this, This word queen, you might circle that, and a lot of people think it's the same word that is used for the queen's, or the king's mother. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean like the queen, the one that's sitting, that he's married to. It could be his mother-in-law, or his stepmother, or it could be his, you understand? And some people think that this phrase, used for the queen mother, or stepmother in this case, might be none other than Esther, Esther. The king had been killed by an assassination. (coughs) Only way that this possibly works out is that the king had been assassinated. His dad was Ahasuerus, who was the king during the time of Esther, and that maybe Esther was still around and had influence over him in order to move the direction of this king so that he would act. Think about that, it's a possibility. I'm not saying it is, it's a possibility. Now look at verse six. For how long shall thou journey be and wilt thou, uh, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me and I sent him a time. Now notice he wanted a schedule a definite time. You know what I find interesting and folks you might mark it up next to that. I don't know about how many people you meet, but sometimes you meet believers and they're saying, well, I'll just pray about it and I'll let God move me in faith. I don't have a plan, but I'll pray and God will lead. It'll be okay. That's not how Nehemiah acted. When the king came back and said, what is it that you need? How long will you be gone? How was it that he knew how long it would take him? He had thought about it. He had planned. Listen, folks. This is why it's a big deal. You're like, Ryan, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Follow me. When he prayed about it, he began to do what? Plan Plan for it. When you make a request, you don't just say, man, I hope it all works out. He didn't do that. He prayed for it, and he began to plan like it was going to happen. What's that called? Faith. Faith. Trust. He's saying, God, I'm not gonna just say, hey, will you work this out? But I'm also gonna begin to plan and act as if you're gonna bring it to pass because I believe you will. Folks, that's confidence. And man, that's a fantastic way to pray. He had a plan that was very practical. Now let's look at this, a solid plan. Verse seven, moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over until I come to Judah. What did he ask for? He wanted letters from the king. Hey, he began to anticipate the needs that he would have. What would these letters do for him? Well, they would get him out of the kingdom and they would give him safety as he went into Judah. He was anticipating the needs. Hey, folks, when you begin to ask God to work and move, you need to anticipate obstacles that you'll run into. Hey, think about if he had only anticipated the obstacle of the king and that was it. When he brought him the need and he set out on his way, he would come out of the kingdom, and they'd say, where's your letters from the king so you can go to Judah? If he hadn't thought about it, what would happen? He'd have to turn around, go all the way back to the king, ask for permission, and then go again. Listen, he began to work his way through it. Look at verse 8. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates the gates of the palace which appertained to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter. And the king did what? He granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He asked for a letter also for timber so that when he got to that area, listen folks, if he showed up to Jerusalem ready to build the walls up, to build a house but he didn't have any wood, what good is it? What's good is all these requests that he made. He's anticipating obstacles. And he says, give me a letter so I can get out of the kingdom and I can get there. Give me another letter so that I can get wood because Asaph, we know that he's, he's you know, really tight with the king's wood. He won't give it away. So he asked for a letter from him as well. Folks, that is fantastic. He did more than pray. He also planned for it. Okay, folks, can I get really close to home a little bit? When you pray, do you pray in confidence believing that God is going to actually do it? Do you plan like it's going to happen? Can I be honest, like for me, so many times I pray a prayer and I, it's like a, you like throwing stuff at the wall and you hope something sticks. Have you ever done that before? Like let's just pray for a whole bunch of things and man, I, I hope one of these will work out. Nehemiah didn't do that he prayed and planned he believed that God would actually do it and folks part of the the power of prayer is also the confidence you believe God will act you actually believe that he'll do exactly what it is that you're praying according to his will plan for it that way now imagine what happens as he sets out and he comes to the first gate and the guy says you got your letter you, got, you can't leave the kingdom without your letter. He pulls out the letter. This is signed by the king, buddy. Lets him right through. He gets all the way over to Jerusalem, and he sets up there, and the guy says, he tells him, he said, I need some of the wood that you got here. It's the king's wood. You can't get wood from the king unless you got a letter. He pulls out that letter and says, look right here. I got a king right from the, letter himself, right from the king himself. And begins to give him everything that he needed. Hey, folks, when Nehemiah prayed, he prayed specifically that God would move in the heart of the king so that he could get to Jerusalem. Hey, folks, did God do that and more? Hey, he not only gave him the permission to get there, he also gave him letters of protection. He also gave him soldiers. Look at what happens. Look at verse nine, and then I came to the governors beyond the river, and they gave the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Listen, folks, you wanna talk about an answer to prayer? You know the verse that says God's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that you ask or think? That's it right there. He only asked for him to move in the king's heart, and what else did God throw in on top of it? Protection, letters from the king, All the supplies you could possibly need in order to build a house, build the walls, rebuild everything that you want to in Jerusalem. Folks, God does more than you even ask or think. So the question is, why in the world would we not pray? Look at what he says in verse verse 8. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Folks, you got to highlight that one. You're like, how in the world did he get that hap- to happen? Listen, it happened because four months earlier, he had put himself down on his knees before the king of kings, before the king of heaven, and he began to cry out to God, and God heard his prayer and moved. That's where the wind came from. Now look at what happens in verse 10. We're introduced to some enemies, and we're gonna be done. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant and the Ammonite heard of it, it did what? It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man seeking the welfare of the children of Israel. Here's the opposition. Hey, folks, when you choose to do anything for the Lord, what will happen? Opposition. Go ahead and count on it. They begin to fight back against him. Inevitably, you'll find a sandballot or a Tobiah that'll push against it. People that are negative, people that'll say it won't work. They made plans to begin to push back against Nehemiah's plans. And folks, if you live by faith, you'll encounter hostility from people. Hey folks, but listen, when there's opposition, that doesn't mean you're not where God, it doesn't mean you're not where he wants you to be. As a matter of fact, it can mean you're exactly where he wants you to be. Now look at verse 11. And so I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. What did he do for three days? You guys are thinking like me. I think Nehemiah probably recognized the task was even bigger than he thought. And so Nehemiah probably got back down on his knees again and began to pray and asked God to give him the direction that he needed so that they could rebuild the walls for his people. But listen, when he got up from his knees, I bet he began to plan again because he knew God was going to do it. Hey, folks, how's your prayer life? You believe that God can move even the heart of a pagan king? Listen, if he can move the heart of a pagan king any direction that he wants because the king's heart is in Jehovah's hand. Do you think he can change the people around you, that, you need to be, that need to be changed? Let me give you some applications, some things to apply. First of all, changing the heart is God's specialty no matter how important a person may be. Listen, the only person that can operate in the heart, not you, that's not your area. That's God's area. He specializes in changing people, especially stubborn ones, right? Right? Changing the heart of stubborn people is something only God can do. So listen, have you tried telling God about people? Tried telling on them to God and allowing him to work on them? Try it out. The second thing is this, prayer and waiting go hand in hand. You haven't learned how to pray if you haven't learned how to wait. And part of that prayer is believing that eventually God will work it out when the time's right. Right? And I believe that personally that waiting time was the time where God was was preparing Nehemiah for Jerusalem. How important. Number three, faith is not a synonym for disorder or a substitute for carefully planning. Listen, God wants you to have some kind of direction for what he wants you to do and accomplish. Another thing is this, opposition oftentimes reinforces the will of God instead of hindering it. When people push back against it, trust God for it. Listen, Satan doesn't want you to accomplish stuff for his, for God's kingdom. There's going to be opposition. Now, lastly, and one of my personal favorites is this: refuse to accept the credit for the work of God, the work that God accomplishes. He says, "According to the hand of my God upon me," in verse eight. Nehemiah recognized more than anything. Nehemiah wasn't the one that got Nehemiah to Jerusalem. He said it was according to the good hand of God upon me. Man, I love that. Hey, you want to see God act and move? Give him credit when he does it. Know when you did it and know when he did it. You know, there's a story Charles Swindoll tells in his book. I absolutely love it. And it's an illustration of what I'm really trying to say to us tonight and we'll be done. In his book, he makes this statement. It's in his book called The Tale of the Tardy Oxcart. He makes this statement, and I want to read it to you. I hope that you'll take in the words. The axe cannot boast of the trees that it has cut down. It could do nothing but but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. He uses it. And the moment the woodman throws down the axe and throws it aside, it becomes only iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Allow yourself to be an instrument used in God's hands for his purposes and for his glory. Then when he accomplishes something through you, do not ever forget that he was the one that did it. I'm just a piece of iron. He's the woodsman. Hey, folks, uh, what do you think it would happen if we began to be a group of people that were like Nehemiah? that would drop to our knees and we would begin to pray and ask God to move and do something we can't do. You know, there's a reason why we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. It wasn't by accident. I firmly believe that God wants to do something with Metro Baptist. There's no doubt about it. But I believe that one of the ways that God accomplishes that is when he's the one that will get the credit for it, not anybody else. And the only way we're really going to see God move in our church is if we begin to pray and ask him to do it. And listen, it might be that we might have to be like Nehemiah and we might have to wait four months or maybe even longer. But I'm convinced more so than ever before, we need a group of people to be praying for it. And uh, folks, it's going to take people getting down on their faces and asking God to do it. And the fact is, is that it can't just be one person, although I think God can use one person. You imagine what God would do if it was a whole group of people gathered together, praying for one thing and asking God to work, that you would begin to impact our community and begin to change our area for his glory. And we could just look back at the end of it and say, hey, I was just an ax that was in God's hands. I wasn't the one that did it. He's the one that cut it down. I just happened to be a part of it. Folks, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Amen. Amen. But we need to pray for it. Let's uh, have the ushers in the back. If y'all come forward, we'll receive tonight's offering. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we come before you tonight and we recognize that we're small. Lord, you're big. Lord, you're infinite and we're finite. God, we're weak, but we know that you're strong. Lord, would you convict our hearts to be a group of people that'll pray and ask you to move? Lord, I believe there's things that you want to do in our day, and I believe that there's ways that you want to impact our community. But Lord, we need to be a group of people that pray. God, burden us that we would begin to ask for you to move and Lord, we'll give you glory for everything that happens. I pray that you would bless this evening's offering, keep us safe as we go home this evening and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Fantastic. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, be back on Wednesday night. Hopefully I'll uh, have myself in order and then we will uh, have our Bible study and hopefully it'll be less exciting this time. And uh, hope y'all have a great week. Be praying for you and uh, y'all have a good evening. Thanks.